Welcome in as we uh, begin, turn the page and begin a new series uh, this Sunday. Before we do, um, I, I do, I'm going to commit a little bit of a social faux pas, all right? Uh, bear with me, give me grace. Uh, a few weeks ago, I invited you all to Christmas House, uh, which is this weekend. It's going to be Saturday, uh, beginning at six, uh, and we were going to do we're going to do a Christmas concert, things like that for the for the community. Um, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is I'm officially uninviting you. <laughs> Hang on. The good news is, the reason I'm uninviting you is because there has been such a turnout of families that we ain't got no place to put you if you came. All right, so we have over 20 families that are going to be participating in our Christmas house. And so uh, we would tell you that you're not going to miss a ton. A lot of what we're doing that night, we're going to be doing on the 19th uh, as well in our Christmas service. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, I do have to uninvite you. Um, if you serve in it, uh, you can come, right? So, like, maybe maybe if you there's something that, that you need to do. I know Joseph and Lauren have been working uh, tirelessly uh, with all this, especially this new influx of, of folks. But, man, we are excited about being the hands and feet of Christ in the community. Many of you have brought food and stuff. And so, thank you for that. This weekend was a busy weekend. Not just baby dedication, obviously, which we're excited about, but also uh, just the things that we had going on in the community. Hey, y'all, we finished second in the parade, right? Our float finished second. And by our float, I mean Lenita and her mama that provided all the stuff for our float. Uh, she finished second. So we were very thankful to her uh, and told her she should wear it as a bow when she came to church today. Um, but uh, anyway, but we are, we are really, really excited about what we've got going on. We're in a new series entitled Clothed. For the, for the next three weeks leading up to Christmas, the title of our series is Clothed. Uh, there is so much in Scripture, so much imagery uh, that Jesus used that, that in the Old Testament that we see, and the book of Revelation specifically, where we see clothing playing a very, very big role in how someone is perceived. We draw stereotypes. We draw uh, a lot of conclusions about people sometimes by how they dress. And so uh, clothing is important. And we find that in scripture. So as I was looking for the next three weeks, what we would have driving to uh, our Christmas service, uh, I just felt like this is an appropriate time. And so uh, to celebrate that, we are clothing ourselves. I hope we are clothing ourselves Christmas anyway, but we are asking you to wear a tacky Christmas sweater. So we're going to make a big party of it. It'll be a lot of fun. We are having a giveaway. You will receive a prize if you have the tackiest sweater. So on the 19th, two weeks from today, uh, we will have a tacky Christmas sweater uh, contest. So bring your Christmas sweaters, wear your Christmas sweaters. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun and we're going to have a really, really good time. Christmas is usually uh, a higher day where we've got a lot of visitors and we want them to see us having a really, really good time. All right. So I want to let you know that, but so we, we're having that fun, but I am going to have to uninvite you to our Christmas house, uh, at least for this year until we come up with an alternate plan, all right? Uh, turning your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. 
Revelation chapter 19 is where we want to really focus. Uh, Revelation 19 is really the climax of all of Scripture uh, because we see something in Revelation 19 that really the people of God have been trying to get to since the Garden of Eden. We have been trying to bridge this disconnect between us and a holy God. God created us, right? In Genesis 3, he created man in his own image. And he said that man was good. What that means is man was pure. Man was completely undefiled. And God met with them as a friend in the cool of the day, right? He had a perfect unity with man. Because sin had not entered the picture. But in Genesis 3, something catastrophic happened. And there was a rupture between the relationship between God and man when sin entered the world. And for the entirety of the narrative of Scripture, which covers, by the way, the entirety of time-space history. Yes, that's, that has happened and that is what is to happen The scope of history is about man's attempts, ultimately, to the church's reconciliation, to be united with Christ. And when we see that depiction in Revelation 19, we see it in really positive, but in my mind, really unfamiliar terms. So let's look in Revelation chapter 9, starting in verse 6, let's look at the beautiful bride. The beautiful bride. Listen to verse 6 of Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. We don't know who this multitude was. We can assume possibly that it was the 144,000 saints that were around the throne room that were crying out to God. But this, this is a bigger noise than John had experienced before this time. Like a mighty, mighty waters or mighty peals of thunder. They were crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Well, that's important terminology. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this is a reality that for me as the pastor of this church and many within the church is truly alien to us. Lord, I don't understand how you can clean my dirtiness my wretchedness and my ruin. God, I I recognize, I can't truly grasp how at the end of days that I, in collection with all of the saints, will amount to a beautiful, righteous 
bride for you. Lord, I don't get it, and I don't understand it, but I believe it. God, may we always, as your church, seek to be this picture. Seek to walk close to you, to be united with you so that we can enjoy this wonderful, this glorious celebration that we see in Revelation 19. May this be a reality in your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, hallelujah is the chorus of all of these saints, all of this, if it is the 144,000 of the multitude, those that had been persecuted, those that had been ridiculed, those that whose lives had been taken for the cause of Christ, that experienced hardness on this life, if it is this group, they are crying out, hallelujah. Now we say a lot of words in church that we don't have a whole lot of understanding to. Right? We talked about Hosanna a couple weeks back, right? For God to save us. It is a cry for the salvation of God. Hallelujah is one of those words. Hallelujah is a word that's mentioned 28 times in the canon of Scripture. It's mentioned 24 times in the book of Psalms. And it's mentioned four times in the book of Revelation. Here in verse in chapter 19 is the last mention of the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is a compound word meaning glory or praise, hallel, glory or praise to Yah, short for Yahweh, to God. So praise and glory to God. It was the way that they began or ended a service. It was to bring people in to worship. Just a few moments ago when we began our service and Will began to play on the guitar and began to welcome everybody in. We had what we call in church world a call to worship. The hallelujah was a call to worship in a certain extent. It was bringing people in. It was piquing everyone's interest. It was getting them focused on the message that they would receive. What is this fantastic message, this cry, this, this thundering of this multitude it was for this phrase, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Everybody direct your attention to the fact that the Lord God Almighty reigns. This is a de declaration of his sovereignty. I believe it is an appropriate way to end the use of the word hallelujah to Call attention to the sovereignty and the power of our God. My friend, I don't care what you feel like. I don't care what your circumstances dictate in your emotions. What I know is that the truth of God's word is such that he is in control of your circumstances in your life. He is our God most High. But he's not just our God, he is our Lord. He has ransomed us and he has set us free. The Lord our God Almighty reigns. And then he says, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and exult or be glad, depending on your translation. Result, rejoice and be glad. This is a phrase that's only used two other times in Scripture. 
And in both times, it's used very similarly to the case of this one. What what is this? If this is the 144,000 witnesses, and they are crying out to the Lord, those that have been mistreated, those that have endured hardship on earth, those that have experienced injustice, those that have experienced ridicule and persecution, they are crying out to the sovereignty of God, but they are calling us to rejoice and be glad. In Matthew chapter 5, we see another example of this rejoice and exult. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because though you are experiencing momentary affliction, great is your reward in heaven. And so if you have the perspective of eternity, you can rejoice and be glad because your reward is coming. We don't live for an earthly reward. Now, those rewards are important and we enjoy those when they come, but we don't live for an earthly reward reward. We rejoice and we're glad. First Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why would we continually get taken off guard by the fact that there are things that go wrong in our life? Why do, and you go, well, I don't. I know that's going to happen. Then why do you handle them so poorly? Why do I handle them so poorly? Why do I immediately fly off the handle as if I am surprised that this is happening to me? This is a reality of life, right? So don't be surprised at the fiery trial, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This word construct always deals in connection with the reward that we will receive one day. The reward of righteousness. Yes, there's a fellowship in Christ's suffering, but there is a reward of righteousness that is eternal and that is never ending. And that is cause for us to rejoice. But he says rejoice and be glad. Why? Why does he say there rejoice and be glad? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I can remember when I got married, I remember my wife. I remember wanting everything to be perfect. She went through great painstaking process to make sure everything is perfect. She negotiated with her parents and grandparents on what they could afford and what they they could have and how they could make it the best possible thing, presentation of herself. The whole point of the marriage, the whole point of the wedding ceremony was for her to present herself to me as her husband. Now, we understand that in a Western civilization, but we don't understand it in light of the Jewish tradition. And the Jewish tradition gives us a lot of insight into what this process looked like for the bride to make herself ready. You see what was happening here. Uh, The Jewish culture holds uh, great insight in that a Jewish man 
and a woman that was looking to be married, they would come to an agreement. The way they would reach that agreement is they would drink from a cup. The man would drink, offering his hand in marriage, and the woman would have the opportunity to drink as well. And they would, they would enter into a new covenant through the drinking of the cup. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's a reflection of Christ in the church. It's why Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This is a New Testament of my blood. Now you drink. Entering into this relationship together. They would do that, and then the two would go, and they would be immersed they, the, in, a, in a mikvah. They would be immersed in the water, symbolic of their union together. Now, we see an Old Testament picture of a New Testament concept, right? Jesus was baptized. He was baptized as the Son of God. He was no less the Son of God before he was baptized, but he was walking in obedience, showing he was proving his obedience to God and faithfulness to God. They would be washed together in the mitva, and they would be considered betrothed. At this point, the marriage canopy would be over their life. They would be entered into a phrase called the huppa. They would be, by all intents and purposes, married. They weren't living together. They weren't, uh, they weren't, uh, be, have, they weren't, uh, having uh, sexual intercourse. They weren't doing any of those things, but they were together. They were faithful to one another. And so Joseph dealt with this with Mary when as they were together, in order to be separated, at this point, they would have to have a writ of divorce. Legally, they were bound together. So the obviously, for Mary to turn, come up pregnant would have been a very difficult thing to deal with in that day based on how they viewed Jewish customs. Because then here's what would happen. Oh, that's fine and good. But then during the betrothal, the man and the wife, would, they would split ways for a time. The man would go and he would begin work on the place for his bride. He would prepare a place for her. Does that sound familiar? It should. Jesus told his disciples what? Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you don't, you, don't you know I'm coming back? That where I am, there you may be also. And Jesus did this. Symbolic of preparing a place for his bride. He would leave and he would prepare a heavenly home for us. But this, the man would go and for around a year, the man would prepare this place. And then he would show up unannounced. He would show up and the bride or her party would not know when he was going to come, but he would show up unannounced. And when he came, son, it was a shindig. It was a party. It was a parade. There were flutes and there were trumpets and there were shofars and there were lights and there were sounds. It was something to behold. Sometimes it was at night when as soon as the house was built, the, the, the proceedings could begin. And so... It was incumbent upon the bride to make herself ready. The bride would be 
prepared at all times. The bride would go immediately and purchase her wedding garment so that she would be ready and be adorned appropriately. That she would have her bridal party ready, waiting with lamps in hand in case he were to come at night so that they would be ready to be received. It would be a shameful thing for there to be darkness as the the bridegroom comes to receive his bride. But he would go and prepare a place and then he would come in the night and her job was to work in such a way that if he came at any moment, she would be presented in perfection. She would be presented spotless and blameless. And as we read Revelation 19, this is the condition of his bride, the church. This is the condition. This is me and you, y'all. I don't know about you, but I don't feel spotless and blameless. I don't know about you, but I don't feel, feel pure and clean. But it says here that his bride has made herself ready and she has clothed herself with fine linen. You know what he's saying? He's saying we are perfect. We are white as snow. We are washed clean. We're new. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like this. And sometimes I feel like, man, if God came back, if Jesus came back for his bride, man, he would find me in shambles. He would find me nothing like this. But this is truth of God's word that he will be united to his bride and his bride will be pure. It'll be, she will be pure. So this is a promise from God's word because in your notes, a faultless bride is the reward of a flawless groom. Perfection deserves perfection. And in fact, if perfection had anything to do with something less than perfect, it would be no longer perfection. This is required of us to adorn ourselves appropriately, awaiting the return of our groom, the return of our king, the return of our savior. So that creates a dissonance in my heart. I don't know if it does in yours, but it creates a dissonance in my heart of reality to expectation. I'm not living up to my end of the bargain because we're not just described as a beautiful bride, right? We looking good in our wedding garments. We are, we are, we are fine. We are, we are looking shiny. It is great news in Revelation 19. So how do we get there? Because number two, we are a blemished bride. The reality is we're not perfect. So what's happening in the meantime? Isaiah chapter 64 paints this beautiful picture, a very concerning picture, but a beautiful picture for us of the condition of Israel. In the time of Isaiah, Isaiah would see the northern kingdom fall to the Assyrians. And he would warn the southern kingdom, the same thing's happening to you. Don't think just because you got Jerusalem as your capital that it's not going to fall as well if you don't get right. So he is preaching doom and gloom. He is preaching coming judgment to Israel. Listen what he says. This is Isaiah 64 verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. This is God. God meets those who who joyfully work righteousness. Those who remember you in your 
ways. What is he saying? God, you respond to people who are righteous. You respond to people. You desire to be close. This marriage union makes sense if your bride is perfect. But you only respond in closeness to those that are righteous. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And in our sin, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Will we ever be saved? Will I ever be this again? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Our righteousness, the things that we do to be righteous, are tainted. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. He is not painting a great picture. There is a lot that has to happen between Isaiah 64 in order for Revelation 19 to be a reality. He's saying, we are not this way. No one is seeking you. No one is doing good. Isaiah was prophesying in a time where Israel was completely perverted, completely slanted against God. And in his anger, God was allowing them to reap the whirlwind of their sin. These were his people. The reality for Israel, as Isaiah identifies, is that they can't help themselves but to sin. The story of the Old Testament stands as definitive proof man can't help themselves. We can't do it. It doesn't matter how many laws we have. It doesn't matter how many traditions we hold to. It doesn't matter how closely we we try to study God's word, how much we memorize. We can't do it on our own. In your notes, in your notes, the one thing God requires of us is the very thing we can't do for ourselves. The one thing that's required, be holy, be blameless, get ready for me. I'm preparing a place. I'm working this salvation. I am joining you as your husband. The one thing that I'm asking you to do is make yourself ready. Church, we can't do it. We can't attain this. Instead, where we find ourselves is in a condition more like this. The goal is to be spotless and blameless. And y'all, we got stains for days. Do you know what I'm going to do with this shirt? I bought both of them at the exact same time. Do you know what I'm going to do with this shirt when I'm done with this service? I'm going to throw it away. It smells like gasoline somehow. I, 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 I used my foot and scraped it in the gravel, but apparently there was gas somewhere around there. It smells terrible. Um... I'm going to throw this thing away. Why? Because it's tarnished. It's, it's good for nothing. It ain't worth it to try to clean this, right? It's not worth it on my marriage, right? And to frustrate my wife and say, hey, clean this. I need an undershirt, right? It ain't worth it. I'm just going to toss it. We've all been there. I'm, I'm unclean. Israel is unclean. And you're going, yeah, Alan, but hang on. You're talking Old Testament here. No, I'm not. 
Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, I think it's interesting that maybe in thinking that very thought, the people after Jesus had come might be tempted to think they were in better standing than these rags. But Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes the psalmist. He quotes Old Testament to prove what the human condition is. You know what he says? In verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the reality of the human condition. That we are stuck between a, this is what God's word tells us we will be one day, but this is who we are now. He tells us we will be clean, but we have these rags. As we make this transition from rags to robes, right? What does this mean to be clothed? What does it mean to, to clothe ourselves appropriately in the presence of complete holiness? We know how the Old Testament story plays out. Israel doesn't respond. Israel is ruined in their sin. And Israel would go into exile. The one thing required of us is the very thing that we can't do for ourselves. But that's not the end of the story. Because just as we will be a, if we are to be a beautiful bride one day, but we have blemishes within us, we are also a beloved bride. We are a beloved bride. Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the people of Israel have left exile. They've, they've been in exile for 70 years, and a portion of them have returned. And they're thinking, hey, we're going to get it on track again. And they're realizing, no, we ain't. We're living with a sham of a governor leading us. We are leading, leaving, living under the dime of a foreign pagan power. And the people around us are marauding us every single day. The situation that Israel found themselves in was a dire situation. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, we see a picture of a courtroom. It's where we get this idea, you've seen it before, right? That we stand convicted of crimes and Satan is accusing us. This is exactly what we see in Zechariah chapter 3, this is a symbol of what's going on in this day. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Joshua was the high priest that would return from exile. He was of the appropriate lineage. But Joshua, like every other priest, had flaws. And so he wasn't just symbolic of the spiritual leadership that was needed in that day. He was symbolic of the spiritual corruption that had happened for Israel's history. And he stood there 
in dirty rags. He stood before Almighty God in dirty rags. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Satan, the accuser, was sitting there explaining every stain. Every stain on his garment was meticulously addressed. You see, the word filthy in the Hebrew, some of that translation is lost on us. It literally means excrement. It means human bodily waste. And he's standing before a holy God in unholy garments, and he's being accused rightly by Satan. But that's not where it ends. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel. Many believe this to be Jesus. Was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Take away the filthiness. Take away the dirtiness. There was nothing that could be done on Joshua's behalf by himself to clean his garments. And so what the angel said, what Jesus by extension said, is do away with the dirty garments. Take them away. I've got something else for him. He's not righteous. He's not clean. But I am, and what I have is sufficient for him as well. What I have is sufficient for him as well. My friend, in your notes, righteousness is the product of God's affection, not our action. How are we to be made clean? But God. We were dead in our transgressions and sin. We were standing rightly accused, being presently accused by our accuser. We were doomed. But God, because of his mercy, lavished his love on us. Church, I don't have to make myself clean because I have been made clean by Christ. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul sums it up to the church of Corinth this way. Verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin, he who was pure, became sin for us. And he nailed it to a tree. He died for my sin and for your sin. And in so doing, he made a way for us to exchange our rags for his robes of righteousness. This is what we see in Jesus. Not that we have clothed ourselves, but that he has clothed us. Let's go back to verse to chapter 19. For just a second, I want to look at one thing in verse 8. Notice it said the bride was made ready, but it doesn't say that she found a really pretty 
garment. What does it say? It was granted her to clothe herself this way. It was granted to her. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like a gift to me. That sounds like a gift of righteousness. My friend, God will never argue your sufficiency. He'll argue his sacrifice. And if we would respond, if we would surrender our rags to him, if we would give our life to him, he has a robe for me. He has a robe for you. We can be the righteousness of God through him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? This marriage theme is important. We'll be tracking it next week as, as well. Continuing to learn more about what Christ has done for us, how he has clothed us. But if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I want you to know that this scene that was depicted in Zechariah is your current condition. You know the reason why you can be accused? It's because you're guilty. It's not about doing good things. Yeah, listen, what did, what, did, what did Isaiah say? Even our righteousness, even the things that we try to do right are filth because they come from a heart burdened with sin. So if you're here today and you're ready to make a change, you're ready to exchange your life for the life that Christ has for you, you can have that relationship with him. You can be not cleaned. You can be made new. Completely made new by the blood of Christ. Would you respond to that today? In just a moment, I'm going to pray. When I say amen, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. To whatever you need to do today, whatever decision you need to make, I would love to invite you to respond to that decision. Whether you're here in person or online, you can do business with God today. Get right this relationship and experience what it's like not to try to clean yourself up, but to be clean. He offers that to you today through a relationship with would you respond to that? Would you lay down your sin? Would you let go of what you're holding on to so tightly? Would you respond to his grace and his mercy? You might be here for a baby dedication. Seeing a little one trotted up to the front. Maybe God, God has got a word for you today. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's to your heart. Would you respond? Would you be so bold? let somebody know about the decision that you need to make for the Lord today. 
maybe you're here and maybe you need to respond in other ways. Maybe you need to respond for baptism. Or maybe you need to respond to be baptized. Maybe that's never happened in your life as we've talked about. You need to enter that covenant relationship. You need to boldly proclaim it to others what Christ has done already in your heart. Pray that you would do that, whatever this looks like. Whatever a appropriate response looks like to you, I pray that you would do that in these next few moments. Father, we love you. Have your will and way in our hearts. And if you have your way in our hearts, you'll have your way in this place. Pray against any way the enemy would seek to disturb, to seek to distract. Just pray that you would receive glory for everything that happens in these next few moments. Pray for those that need to do business with you. May they come. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we sing, would you come? This is for you. Laying it down, responding to the invitation of the Lord. Would you come?